it is baked into the way that these schools operate to devalue academic achievement because they don't want a paper trail of how they're failing your kids. Even before the pandemic hit, 66% of American fourth graders were not reading at grade level. As minority students fall behind, schools in America are abolishing standardized tests, ABCDF grading scales, and entrance exams. In pursuit of equity, they started orienting everything around the lowest common denominator, and the result is really devastating for society. Today I sit down with Luke Rosiak, an investigative reporter at The Daily Wire. He's the author of the new book, Race to the Bottom, uncovering the secret forces destroying American public education. 50% of kids in Los Angeles are truant. They're just missing. They don't come to school anymore. We lost them. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Luke Rosiak, great to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me on. Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. I just finished reading your book this morning. Uh, unbelievable amount of research going on here. One thing that really struck me, um, you say actually in the epilogue um, that talking to a number of people, I think it was back in 2019, a bunch of a number of local Floridians basically made you rethink your whole conception of politics. So tell me about that. Yeah, that was a big moment of transformation for me. I mean, I, I was working here in D.C. as a reporter covering Capitol Hill, you know, um, all that Washington stuff that a lot of people, including myself, thought was the most important. Um, and I hadn't really thought much about local politics at all. But people started contacting me about schools' problems, and they, it was so personal how it affected them. And I realized that most of what Congress does, to be honest, is you're not likely going to feel it as personally as far as your day-to-day -day life. And there's a lot of things that local government does that has that impact. And I also realized that because most people weren't paying attention to local politics, things could go wrong. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I quit my job and I decided to spend a year focused on nothing but, you know, local, the school, the school problem, which occurs really entirely across these 13,000 local school districts. And so, I mean, some of these districts actually impact a huge number of people, right? But I think as you, the case you make in the book is that the, the actual, um, like who gets to be on the board was largely under the radar in a lot of cases. And some people don't even realize that there's some radical agendas at play. Yeah, I mean, I live in Fairfax County, Virginia, and that's a very large county. It's had 1.2 million people. And so in 2019, one of the things that really uh, woke me up to this issue was learning that out of the 10 Democrats on the Fairfax County School Board, none of them had kids in the school system. So. The whole school board, none of them had any kids in the school system. And so why would you run for school board if you didn't have any kids? And it turned out that they all had their own weird political agenda and they were just kind of using the schools as a vehicle either to gain access to children or to money or to whatever. So t just the impetus of, of putting this book together, you said you spent a year, you were already, you had the idea that you were going to put this into a book. Mm -hmm. Um, you saw something unusual happening in your own uh, school district. You had heard from people because you were writing stories in other places. So that that's it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, people were contacting me with, you know, the school. I, I basically, I saw that something was coming, that schools mattered, 
and that no one was paying attention to them and that because of that, um, special interests had really started colonizing these schools. And um, it, it was really pervasive. It was like almost everywhere. It started in places like Seattle and Minneapolis, but it had soon spread to really places where you wouldn't expect it. And so shortly after, of course, coronavirus hit and a lot of people started paying attention to schools, but I started working on this book actually before then. And what I found is that a lot of what happened during coronavirus and with CRT and all that, um, it was kind of um, what they had already wanted to do. They kind of used coronavirus to really ramp it all up. Well, okay, so that's actually quite interesting. So, I mean, you basically contend in, in the book that it might not be that the teachers' unions really are fearing for the teachers' safety, right? It may be that there's some other agenda at play and their desire to keep the kids out of school and keep the teachers out of school. So explain that to me. Well, of course. I mean, when it's coronavirus lockdowns in place or whatever, and you're going to, you could still go out to eat at least. I mean, and I lived in Virginia where the lockdowns were pretty bad, but you could go out to eat. You could travel and there's airlines, stewardesses walking down those narrow uh, aisles. You know, you've got the mailman going from house to house. Everyone's working. You can go to Target and you've got cashiers there. The one job category that was just refusing to do their job was teachers. We all know that kids aren't vectors of these diseases, of course. I mean, they were shutting down schools to get money. And they got, you know, I think $80, million, $80 billion in one bill alone, one bailout bill. They got more money than um, the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe. And the schools weren't even open. So where was the money going? They were basically taking your kids as hostages. And so we all kind of know that by now. But the thing to realize is that they have always operated these schools as employment centers for, for, for adults as much as they have as, or maybe more than they have as ed, for places to educate children. And that's a huge problem. I mean, we've almost forgotten that schools exist to educate children. But you also have to ask, if this is the kind of people that would do that, what else have they been doing all these decades when we haven't been paying attention? Mm. Well, so tell me, what, what do you mean by their taking the kids as hostage? What do you mean exactly? Well, they said we're not going to open schools unless we, you meet our conditions. And so those conditions were primarily a lot of money that they said they needed it for safety, but it wasn't really, you know, this, <laughs> they had a, in Fairfax County, they had a warehouse full of so many masks and things like that, that they could, they ran out of room in the warehouse. And the next day, as the, I watched the school board meeting and they're telling the superintendent, you know, the superintendent's staff is reporting, we can't even fit any more masks. We're just loaded up. The next day, the teachers union says, well, if you want us to go to school, you're going to have to give us money to buy masks. So it's a total, there's a dishonesty to it. Um, they they uh, basically said, we're not going to go to work until you either do ideological stuff. Like in Los Angeles, the teachers union said, we want welfare for illegal immigrants or else we're not going to educate your children. So there's politics to it. Mm -hmm. But then there's also sort of the selfish material uh, materialistic element of the teachers' unions just using this to get um, a raise and things like that. Let's talk a little bit about this sort of One Fairfax. You actually dedicate a chapter in the book to this. Tell us about One Fairfax, what it was, you know, and how it, how this, the, I guess, the genesis of the whole idea. Sure. So, I mean, one of the most important concepts to understand is equity. 
Um, a lot of the book is about critical race theory, but I don't really call it critical race theory. I call it equity because that's what the school systems call it. And of course, they're going to deny doing CRT, but almost every school district in the country is on record supporting equity. And it means equal outcomes by race. And that's basically communism. It means forcing equal outcomes by either bringing the top performers down or by just rigging the stats. Um, but one of the things that these you know, equity initiatives do is it's a, it's a very effective way to seize power. Because in any bureaucracy, you have all these different offices and divisions, right? And it's like little fiefdoms. But what they do is they implant the equity stuff above it all so that every decision from every department has to then be cleared through the diversity or whatever equity department because of its impact on race. Mm -hmm. And so in Fairfax County, a group called Policy Link and the Government Alliance for Racial Equity which are two nonprofits that most people haven't heard of, but they're very important um, nodes in this effort to kind of take over local governments to spread this radical agenda. And they've been doing it for about a decade. Um, so they did a study, one of them essentially did a study on Fairfax County to determine like, how can we take it over? And so they did that uh, through a lot of plotting over many years. And they passed this policy that said, you know, every decision must be made through the lens of equity. And then they hired um, this firm to, like, basically tell them what that meant. It, it included both the school system and the county government. So it was a very powerful policy. And what was remarkable is if you go into the documents about these two uh, activist groups, they're very explicit about their methodology for taking over and it's almost like dominoes we'll, we'll take over this county and then this town and then this city and those groups one of them policy link i think covers like i don't know like more than 10 percent of all americans like they've colonized a good portion of america for these radical policies and so i look at it as essentially as well we're all paying attention to washington like what's your opinion on the president and really honestly we all have our opinion about the president, but it doesn't count for much. Where we can have an impact is local government. But there was almost no one going to these sleepy town halls or county council meetings. And who was showing up was essentially lobbyists for these radical groups. And they very meticulously decided to take over every county in the country, just knocking them over like dominoes. Fascinating. You just reminded me of something. You mentioned that the term equity you contend is actually used because they did some kind of focus groups, right? And they said, oh, equity is something that we can actually, you know, get people to respond the right way around, right? Exactly. I mean, they were talking about disproportionality, like policies like affirmative action or disproportionality. People kind of see like not every statistic has to be equal. Like that's kind of a crazy concept. But they really they put a lot of energy and effort into studying it all. How can we manipulate people by using language? And they realized that equity was, a lot of Americans were not paying attention. They literally thought equity was the same as equality just because they sound similar. And I hate to say it was as simple as that. A couple, But those couple letter changes, they make a huge difference. Right. And because equity is effectively this equality of outcome. Correct. And you're saying, I mean, in practice, um, you're saying that that always sort of means equalizing around the bottom. And you offer a number, maybe give me a few examples that where you were, that actually has happened. Yeah, so during the Obama administration, there was concern about discipline disparities in schools. 
and they call it the school to prison pipeline, which essentially means that black boys are suspended more than other people in schools. And so Obama sent a letter from the Department of Justice to every school system saying you're going to be investigated unless your discipline rates were the same for all races. And so the, you know, the rate of Asians suspended for bringing knives to school had to be the same as the rate of blacks for bringing knives to school. But what if one of them brings more knives to school than the other? What do you do? And so you wind up just having to cook the books and let people off the hook for committing serious infractions. And so there was people being beaten up every single day in schools, and the school was just doing nothing about it because they didn't want to send a spreadsheet that had the wrong number of blacks suspended. And so, for example, in um, Los Angeles, over a couple years during the Obama administration, the number of suspensions went from 75,000 a year to only 5,000 a year. So it's essentially just the total curtailing of any disciplinary actions in schools. But unfortunately, it wasn't because the kids got better behaved. So that's kind of what equity is. Instead of changing behaviors, you just change superficially so that the optics look better. Right. Because then you can say, wow, like we've actually reduced the number of uh, disciplinary actions dramatically. I don't know what percent it would be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then another one is... um, merit, you know, these magnet schools, and this is really important, you know, things like Stuyvesant in New York City, or Lovell in San Francisco, or Thomas Jefferson in Fairfax County, these are magnet schools um, dedicated to cultivating our best and brightest and working really hard, and they go on to do things like create the next coronavirus vaccine. Jonas Salk, who invented the um, polio you know, vaccine, went through these specialized schools in New York City. And so it's been incredible to see the school system start devaluing academic accomplishment. And literally, the, the teachers have turned against working hard and doing homework and, and getting the right answers, all in pursuit of equal outcomes. Because one of the, what you could do is try to help the minorities so that they do better, but the teachers have essentially said, "No, we're not going to do that. We're just going to stop measuring." And so they send the they they try to do away with tests where these disparities are revealed and say like, "It's bad to test kids because whatever they have all their excuses," um, but it's really to prevent creating this paper trail. Um, but again, I mean, if you want to help minorities and poor kids, you do it the same way you help anyone else. You give them that rigorous education in math and science and writing, and then they go on to get these well-paid jobs. So essentially, yeah, in pursuit of equity, they have stopped measuring things. They started cooking the books. They started orienting everything around the lowest common denominator. And the result is really devastating for society, not long into the future, but like over the next five to 10 years, where we're having kids that we're not even trying to get them to be smart because it's better for the teachers to look like they're succeeding, they're, they're not failing these kids, and they're not creating these disparities. Let's talk about Stuyvesant and this whole kind of whole how everything kind of unrolled in New York. I'm a bit familiar with, well, somewhat familiar with the situation. But I think you describe it really well. And also you mentioned how this kind of, this concept, this approach actually spread out uh, from New York. But let can you kind of give me an overview of what happened? Sure. So you get into Stuyvesant through a test called the SHSAT. And it's an objective test where you're asked to 
answer math problems. And there's also a writing component. And for years they had, um, you know, a lot of blacks and Hispanics in these schools. But over time it started going down and there started being more Asians in the schools. I think 80% of kids at Stuyvesant are now immigrants or the, child, the children of immigrants. 42 of these kids are actually homeless. And these are the most hardworking, genius kids. So it's really a, 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 a fascinating place. It's the embodiment of the American dream where you can come to New York City with nothing and, you know, go to the, wind up at the top of society through hard work. And one of the reasons they used this standardized test to get in was to make sure that wealthy, well-connected people couldn't, um, you know, use their connections. Yeah, Yeah. they really, their kids had to be skilled. That was the only way in. And so it was really a way to keep the elites from capturing this school. And the merit, what merit was the great equalizer. And it, it brought this, um, very rigorous school to the the middle class and the working class, but because of the fixation on race, um, they basically decided to do away with a the test. There was a lot of activists who were pressuring them: don't use the exam to get into the math school school because asking kids to answer math questions is not a good way to determine whether they know math. This is the kind of thing that like every teacher or every teacher's college or all the teachers unions, all of them accept this premise, which is an absurd premise. It's a it's a conspiracy theory that should be laughed out of, you know, polite society. Of course, a test is a reasonable way to ascertain whether these kids know math. Of course, a test does not discriminate against black people. Um, They're literally saying because there's an English component to the test that the test on the English language is biased against African-Americans and in favor of Asians who are having to, you know, speak English as a second language. It's totally absurd. The truth is children are individuals and some of them are um, seeking out this school and willing to do like five hours of homework a day. And we need to cultivate the best and brightest because what happened here in Fairfax County, they got rid of the tests and they wound up having to do remedial math. And so if we're a society that isn't prioritizing um, math in our schools, what's going to happen to uh, technology, qualities of life that you know, are brought to us by invent- inventions, healthcare, national defense? Um, so this is really a, a bizarre notion. And they really they got rid of a lot of these screen schools. They haven't quite gotten rid of the tests for SHSAT in New York City, but they've gotten rid of some of the middle schools and things like that. And there's still a pressure. There's still pressure to kind of demolish these magnet schools. Well, there, there. I mean, there was a huge pushback, of mm-hmm. course, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think I think you mentioned in the book that uh, you know Asian Americans, or I don't know if it's in New York or where, but actually make up sort of in terms of earnings are pretty low on the mm-hmm. on the scale right so they're kind of they're kind of confusing to this whole racial equity narrative yeah and i think that's one of the things that's really apparent when you look at that chapter in the about the stuyvesant is how dishonest all of these education people are so they they used to say like oh well the reason why blacks and hispanics aren't getting in they can't take the test on the weekend because that's the truth is that many of them are not seeking to go to this school at all it's not like racism they're literally not even applying and so they would be like oh well if you're black you you can't you're occupied on the weekend which is a crazy like 
it's such a weird thing to say. It's like these white people in New York City who are like, oh, all blacks can't are not available on Saturday and Sunday. They're at the black convention that day. And so they move the test to the week to the weekdays. And the percentage of blacks taking the test only went down. Just what what I can't help thinking is like, is it because could it possibly because you failed in your job in educating a certain portion of the population? Right. Could it be? Uh, right. It seems like that doesn't is isn't often on the table. Yeah, and so I think that's ultimately the issue with Stuyvesant is there's a million students in New York City and there's only like 20,000 in the specialized schools. So to be honest, it doesn't really matter what we've got to stay focused on the million. That's the bigger picture. So why would why do they care so much what happens to these 20,000 kids at the specialized schools? And the answer is because it's the optics. When you look at Stuyvesant, what you see is sort of a a big picture of, of how kids are doing in New York City as a whole. And when you see that the blacks and Hispanics are largely absent, then what you see is that the people like um, the, the superintendent of New York City have totally failed all these black and Hispanic kids. And so one of the ways to do this is, of course, start helping the kids. But another way to do it is conceal the problem by just getting rid of the test. And so then you put a couple of tokens into the um, Stuyvesant, but what you don't realize is that the vast majority of blacks and Hispanic kids in New York City are not passing any of their tests. And what you have to understand is we're spending $29,000 per student per year in New York City. How, How do you spend that much money and get that bad results? So that's exactly right. I mean, the, the issue, what, what equity is about is giving up on helping minorities by just equalizing everyone, not by helping them, but just by manipulating outcomes. So this just strikes me as so absolutely bizarre because it's sort of like, it almost implies that there's something wrong with the kids, right? And to me, it's clearly, there's nothing wrong with the kids. The obvious thing to look at would be the educators. But the kind of the case you make through the book, or at least that's the sense I get, is that a lot of this is just kind of an elaborate method. It's almost like this whole kind of CRT ideology almost is being used kind of cynically as a way to avoid responsibility for just not being very good at educating for some portion. Yeah, of and that's, re- I think, probably the most important part of this book is when you start looking at education over the last decade or two, what you realize is that CRT is just the cover-up. What the crime is that the crime is that they're failing all of our kids, and in particular the poor and minority kids. The cover-up is these um, various excuses they have that conceal it. Um, and you know, CRT is basically obviously the big one because they go and they say, well, tests are racist. So yeah, all the black kids in our district, or many of them are, are scoring very poorly, but it's not our fault. Actually, tests are racist. and objectivity isn't real and wanting the right answer is an attribute of whiteness. And so, you know, I have the documents where the consultants are going from district to district saying these exact phrases. Um, It's an insane conspiracy theory. It's not something that any, you know, my friends who are liberal, they don't say that showing up on time is an attribute of white culture. Like, can you imagine someone saying that? I've never heard a black person say that. It's so bizarre. But when you look at it in the context of how that serves the teachers, it basically says, oh, it's not your fault for letting down these kids. You didn't really fail them. It's just this massive conspiracy where they're actually doing fine, even though it doesn't manifest in getting the right answer. So I want to go back to uh, New York now, because you kind of make the case that 
essentially coronavirus never this idea of never let a good crisis go to waste was basically used as a way to push some of these radical agendas further. So we've talked about that a bit, but what about how that actually extended past New York? You're kind of suggesting that New York was the epicenter of this? Um, yeah, I mean, the superintendent at the time, Richard Granza, said that phrase repeatedly, never let a good crisis go to waste. And they have these associations through which the superintendents from the big cities coordinate. And he got together with the rest of them, and pretty soon you see the same ideas happening elsewhere. So those ideas were like, we wanted to get rid of tests already. Like, the teachers always oppose what they call standardized testing, or they call it high-stakes testing. It's all made up. It's just a test that helps figure out, like, are the schools doing a good job? But they've always wanted to get rid of that. Under coronavirus, they did, because they said, well, you can't go to the, you know, there's no school, so you can't do a test. Um... But they also wanted to do a number of other things, like they wanted to move away from grades like A, B, C, D, F to another system that they call standards-based assessments, which is basically grading on a 1 to 4 scale. And so if you think about it, the top on a 1 to 4 scale is really 75% and up. And so what they've done there is they've turned a C plus into an A. Um, And so they have all these different schemes that they had always been wanting to do for like 10 years. And during coronavirus, you see them ramming them through all at once. We can't do the tests, and therefore we can't have gifted and talented and magnet schools because there's no tests. Um, We're not going to do letter grades because a lot of kids are just being totally failed by remote learning. They're all failing or they're not even showing up. So let's let them convert their Ds to a, a pass-fail or you know, their, their Cs to an A using standards-based assessments. So there was all these kind of things that were serving the interests of the teachers' unions and the administrators in the sense that they just concealed the fail, that they were failing these kids. And they started ramming them through, through during coronavirus, and they were very explicit that they intended to use coronavirus to do things that would be permanent. It was essentially evil what they did to the kids. I mean, even to this day, 50% of um, the kids in Los Angeles are, are truant. They're just missing. They don't come to school anymore. We lost them. I, I just saw the headline about that actually on our front page this morning. I mean, it's stunning. You know, that's, a, that's a huge school system. Yeah, and you just think about these kids in, you know, um, in the Bronx or whatever, and they've got maybe a single mom with many siblings, and the mom's got to go to work. And these teachers were just like, no, we won't show up to work, so just deal with it. And during, you know, they had these rallies in New York City, the teachers' unions did, with working with the Democratic Socialists of America. And, you know, they have Randy Weingarten, the head of the union, with her arm draped around... Al Sharpton, and like they have time to do racial activism. They have time to do these job shakedowns where they're demanding, you know, higher pay and things like that. Uh, they're willing to meet, you know, engage in these crowded protests. What they're not doing is willing to do is go to school with a couple of children. And they were willing to harm kids to get their way. But so how did this get out? Why, why, why do you think that New York was kind of this, this place that this whole approach radiated out from, I guess? Well, um, you know, basically these, the way that they coordinate is they have all these associations. So think about the National School Board Association. That's the group that called the parents domestic terrorists. So you've got all these school boards and maybe you've got your little town and you think the people on the school board are good and maybe they are, but the school boards there's this association that purports to speak on behalf of all school board members. 
and they go around, you know, basically using that voice. So they, there, are, there are radical ideologues that have taken over all of the associations. And the groups that are doing that are basically the philanthropic foundations like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and so uh, some of these groups serve to propagate policies throughout the country because it's like this, the Association for Superintendents and the Association for like, you know, all the different officials. When there is a jurisdiction that does these radical policies, the associations can then, um, re, you know, replicate it all over the country. Like when they see that it's, you know, quote unquote, effective from their perspective. No, they, it doesn't have to be effective. It it's never is effective. It okay. never works. Um, what they do is they say it's best practices because another district has done it. Um, but it doesn't actually have to be effective. And that's what's amazing is like none of the things that these educators push are effective. They do everything wrong. They, ta they taught reading wrong. They still teach reading wrong. Um, they have this system they call the, the, the queuing system. And what it basically means is instead of teaching the kids phonics you just have them guess uh, and if you there's a picture on the opposing page maybe just guess the name of the picture maybe look at the first letter and then just guess what the rest of it might be like these people are insane everything they've done is is wrong we should never listen to them um, and yet these are the people who are saying you know parents job is basically subordinate we know what's best we're going to take your kids. And um, that's really important to understand is take ideology out of it and look at the academics. And that's what I try to do throughout this book. Whether it's reading or anything else, uh, there's not really any reason to trust these people. So it's like ideology is taken over in the place of, you know, basic education. It's like ideology is, the edu is perceived as the education instead. Is that... Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you basically have to look at it as two different groups with this weird alliance of convenience. You have the true believers, the radical ideologues or communists, but then you have the teachers unions and the administrators who use that ideology because it happens to serve their goals, which is stop measuring things so people see that we're failing kids in general and especially poor and minority kids. Fascinating. When you say communist, you mean like you know, anything that would fit into the sort of under the woke umbrella, is that, is that? No, I mean communism in the sense that the equity is the forced redistribution of merit and achievement and, um, you know, equal, forced equal outcomes is communism. I also mean okay. the, um, the, the groups that are pushing this, are, again, are the, basically the foundations. So the idea of like, where is critical race theory coming from? It's coming from those foundations, Ford Foundation, et cetera. And those groups routinely fund um, nonprofits that want to overthrow capitalism that are explicitly anti-capitalist. Anti As you put all this material together and it's robust, um, you know, what are your kind of conclusions? Like how have, how have, you mentioned that it changed your mind in thinking, wow, local politics is really where it's at. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what else did you kind of realize along the way that you didn't know? Um, you know, I think that it's funny because since I started writing the book, I broke a number of stories in Loudoun County, Virginia, including the cover-up of a rape there um, that I think really resonated with people because it showed that 
school, you know, teachers and administrators are willing to harm kids to get their way. They're willing to inflict sexual, emotional, and physical abuse on your children to advance their um, financial and um, ideological agenda, or at least allow for it to for allow for it to happen. Yeah, and so there was tremendous attention paid to those stories, but some people started thinking the issue is oh, the Loudoun County, Virginia, or the Virginia schools are bad. And like having written this book, I was like, no, you're totally missing the point. Um, the phenomena that you see in Virginia are the same as the schools that you see everywhere else. And so there's this thing where everyone thinks Congress is bad, but everyone likes their congressmen. We're seeing the same thing now with the schools. They think, oh, the schools in general are bad, but my schools are good. I don't have to worry about it. My, my kids' teachers are good. And the, the issue that I'm grappling with now is people think it's not in their school, and it is. And the book explains how it spreads through these consultants and these foundations and these associations and how um, basically the, it is baked into the way that these schools operate to devalue academic achievement because they don't want a paper trail of how they're failing your kids. Um, and so basically they're not going to admit that all this stuff is going on, but what I try to do is explain in the book how this is in your school district and how you can identify it because um, this is, these ideas are so prevalent, so pervasive, and so pernicious that if we don't regain control of our schools now, I don't know what's going to happen in our country in 10 years. Um, the schools are not the domain of teachers. They're not the domain of administrators. Um, teachers go into colleges with the lowest SAT scores of any major. And then they graduate college with the highest GPA. And so you see things like in San Francisco during coronavirus, they were renaming schools, like taking Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools for anti-racism, but the schools were closed. And so it's like total optics, and that's what they're always doing is manipulating the superficial so that parents don't see what's going on in the inside, which is this academic rot where your kids, regardless of their race or their income, they're just not learning as much as they should be. You know, I can't help but think about something you mentioned in the book that just kind of kept, I kept coming back to as I was reading, which is you mentioned that in critical race theory, I don't know if it's a tenant or an approach or a tool, but you said there's, there's counter storytelling. And so, you know, what you just described makes me think of this is a kind of counter storytelling or there's, maybe just briefly tell me what it is, how you saw it manifest and then I'll, I'll tell you more about why I keep thinking about it. CRT opposes whiteness, but then it redefines whiteness to mean anything that is dominant. So there's this sleight of hand here where it's creepy enough to oppose whiteness because it's kind of like racist, but um, to oppose anything that is dominant is really just nihilism and anarchy. Like they will just, quote, dismantle things just because they're dominant. And so they'll say that the scientific method is dominant and therefore it should be dismantled. Um, so CRT is a takeover ideology that rejects objectivity. And one of the ways they do that is by saying um, lived experience counts more than facts. So you can go into a, a courtroom and you can be, <laughs> DNA could have you guilty, but if, you're, if you say that, you know, if you're, in, in, you're innocent in subjective way, like it's, a society can't function on some philosophical framework that rejects objectivity. But that's what CRT does. 
it positions the lived experience, which is just whatever you say it is or however you feel. So that's what counter storytelling is. And they call it counter storytelling because the issue is if objectivity isn't real and all that matters is how we feel, well then what if you and I feel differently? How do, how do we reconcile that? And so it's counter storytelling because uh, subject, subjectivity preempts objectivity, but only if it furthers critical race theory. So, in other words, both of our feelings, feelings matter, but our feelings only matter if they serve the ends of CRT. And so, if your lived experience is something that doesn't help advance the CRT takeover, then your lived experience doesn't matter. So, it really is a takeover ideology that results in essentially the, the total breakdown of anything that works with, without really offering any solutions. So when I think about counter storytelling, right, it, it strikes me that anything that advances the political agenda, this is how I read, read it, essentially, you know, a made up story is actually perfectly fine and legitimate to use as long as it's, you know, basically for the revolution or for the political agenda, so to speak. And I just saw that kind of a theme coming through again and again and again. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you're, you're exactly right. It doesn't, I said lived experience, but they admit it doesn't even have to be your lived experience. If your lived experience doesn't help advance their goals, you can just m literally make someone up. Um, but there is a, a, a tremendous dishonesty running through all of this, the CRT stuff, and then the broader education stuff over decades. And you look at how they say things like schools are underfunded. That's something they've been saying for 20 years. It's never been true. They just straight up lying. And so when I started working on this project at first, I thought, well, is there some like caveat here? Are they being like lawyers? They're kind of like, they've got some way where it's technically true, but it's misleading. No, it's just, they just lie. And they just repeat it enough that it feels true. You can't believe how dishonest all of the discourse is around education. And it's really just because people haven't been paying attention or they just accept the word of whoever's saying it because they would know best. And so even when you talk about school boards, People will like vote for teachers because they're like, oh, well, they're a teacher. They probably know about schools. That's so lazy. It's such a conflict of interest to have a teacher on a school board. It's, it's incredible. I mean, why would you do that? Um, but, <laughs> so even the PTA is like the Parent Teacher Association. Like, why isn't it just a parent's association? And so what they've done is taken it so that if you are a parent who's trying to do the right thing and be involved in your child's education, Instead of like monitoring whether the school is doing a good job, they relegate the parents' role to like going into the kitchen and like baking like cookies for the teachers and then like selling them and giving the teachers money. Like they, they turn parents' role in schools into giving extra money to the teachers and just being subordinate to them. And that's not all the role that it, it, parents should have, but they know that any parent, once parents start paying attention, everything changes as far as schools in this country. You're just reminding me of your uh, chapter about Brian Davidson and sort of, you know, a parent who really did, did take some very keen interest and in what had the, the pushback against that. Before, I, I want to maybe finish up with that anecdote because it's, it's, it's actually powerful what a, one parent can do in a way, right? Or at, least, or at least try to do. The thing that struck me about this, so, you know, CRT, right? Originally, I mean, it was sort of an idea. It's kind of a lens of looking at the world. CRT, right? Let's pretend that the answer to every question is racism. 
right? So if that's if we assume that that's the CRT lens, so you know perhaps you know in an intellectual way you can use this as as a way to look at you know, look, study the world and see what you learn from that, right? But to adopt it as a as an ideology for reality or something that's like an explanation for reality sounds bizarre. You mentioned the the Howard Zinn perspective. Actually, that's actually quite similar because I think Howard Zinn himself built his whole history. Uh, as a kind of a lens of looking through. I don't think he was even suggesting himself that this is actually reality, mm-hmm. but it's been taken that way uh, by, again, a lot of, seems like a lot of school systems. So how th- this, th- it seemed like there's a theme here of taking a very specific, you know, lens on the world that might be an academic lens for, you know, some sort of social theory studies and saying, no, no, this is actually reality. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the CRT is a hammer looking for nails. Everything is racist. Uh, the problem is we live in a very broad world with a lot of things for the kids to learn about. It's not all about racism. And they do have this problem of they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, CRT is a takeover mechanism. So it's not just one thing out of many that your kids learn about. Like, it will, it will take over every other subject. And so I love when they try to say it's about like teaching slavery in history class. Like that's so absurd. I spent two years studying this stuff. Like there's no reasonable way you can think that's what this is about. This is about stuff in, you know, homeroom and science class and math. So in the Illinois Math and Science Academy, which is the top math school in, in, um, Chicago, in, in Illinois, they're saying math should be replaced by mathematics, which incorporates indigenous ways of knowing and in they're telling the indigenous ways of knowing are that there's no such thing as the right ma- answer to a math problem and this is all pushed by a black consultant who wouldn't know anything about native american stuff so it's completely insane it's a total takeover ideology um, but what really bothers me is you know taking democrat and republican out of it we all just want our kids to be happy and having your kids focus relentlessly on this idea of negativity and oppression and America is bad, the kids don't have the context for that. And it's not offered as a counter perspective. It's, it's offered every single minute of the day. Um, we're just making kids unhappy. But making kids sad is bad. We just we want to preserve a joyous and innocent childhood um, for our kids. That's what they deserve. So as we finish up, you know, I, I, I can't help. I, I love, I mean, I loved and was horrified at the same time by the story of Brian Davidson, I think, in Loudoun County, right? Um, maybe just kind of briefly tell me a little bit about him and maybe what people can learn about, you know, how parents can learn about how they might approach this. Sure. So he's a mathematician and um, this was like back in 2014. He realized, so the the Obama administration wanted to start measuring schools, not by what percentage of kids passed their tests, but how kids were progressing over time. And so it was really smart and it was a good policy. What you would do is, whatever score a kid got on his state exam last year, then take the same kid's exam test the next year and figure out, did he improve by a lot? Did he actually go down? Is he holding steady? And in that way, you can figure out whether the schools are doing their job and whether the teachers are doing their job. And the important thing is, by doing that, you get rid of this noise about, oh, schools in the inner cities are not good. That's 
issues. Uh, kids start at different places. They enter, some of them enter kindergarten better, better prepared. But it doesn't mean the kids can't learn. And so there's this different way of viewing things that was way more accurate. But the problem was because it was accurate, it showed that a lot of teachers were actually not doing their job. And some were, it also showed that some teachers were good. And so the teachers unions were very opposed to using the system of measurements called the student growth percentiles. And they're actually breaking the law by not doing it. And so this dad starts pointing it out, like, excuse me, here's the law. You're clearly breaking the law. And they start targeting him. They um, call the police on him. They try to get his kids taken away by Child Protective Services. And the only reason they can come up with is one day his kids wore rain boots to school when they had kickball practice. Um, like, it's insane. Like, they literally tried to destroy this, kid, this guy's life. And he was a popular father. He was elected as president of the PTA. And so they dis the school system disbanded the PTA when he won. Um, they called his father, who was like in his 90s, to tattle on him. They called his employer. Um, the things they did to destroy this father, simply for calling attention to a way that we could analyze test scores in a way that could be helpful to um, improving the experience that kids had in schools. Um, it was so vitriolic, it was so intense, and it was so personal. Um, but I like the story because it comes from, you know, 2014, 2015. This wasn't ideological. This guy actually wanted a President Obama policy enforced. But the reaction was the same as the reaction we're seeing now to people that um, criticize CRT. Anyone who basically intrudes on the fiefdom of the teachers and administrators, they get that same reaction. Well, the thing that kind of I found inspiring about the story, of course, it was very obviously difficult, right? But the guy stuck with it, mm -hmm. like against all odds, right? Yeah, and that's what you got to do. You got to be persistent here. Um, one of the things people can do is run for school board. You might think, well, I'm just a regular parent. I don't have any background in education. That's the point. Um, it is much better to have outsiders. Don't be confused by all their jargon. Um, if you're not going to run for school, school board, at least show up for these meetings and you got to just show up with courage and confidence. And you get courage by understanding that there are very bad people who are coming for your kids. And if you don't fight, you can't rely on someone else to do it because some of these school districts are pretty small. If not you, then who's going to step up? Um, and you get confidence by learning um, everything you can so that you can engage with them in a precise way. And so that's one of the things I try to help people with this book is understanding all their jargon. And so if they throw out this alphabet soup of nonsense at you, you can say, I understand what you said, but it's stupid and here's why. Because it, it is stupid. And that's one of the things I found is that they construct this needlessly complex language specifically to keep parents out. They have their whole education lingo. It's the dumbest ideas imaginable dressed up in, in unnecessarily long words. Um, but it's not that hard for parents to learn it and then show up because it, we've got to take control. They are our schools. And, you know, you can also do everything I just talked about if you're not a parent. You know, this journey started for me when I realized that out of the all the school board members in my town, none of them had kids in the school system. They were all there to push their weird politics. Well, by the same token, we as taxpayers, we can go to these school board meetings and start being, being active. If you're a grandparent, if your kids are grown, um, you have a right to those schools. The schools take, you know, the, the large 
portion of your tax dollars. So they are your schools. They're, they're part of your community. Um, you have every right to hold them accountable. And a funny thing about grandparents is sometimes parents worry that somehow their kid is going to be retaliated against. They can't retaliate against the grandparents. You know, and this just strikes me as, as kind of the final thing. I think something that's important, uh, or I guess a lesson or maybe a reminder that I learned from reading your book is simply that sometimes just because it's loud, it doesn't mean that it's the majority perspective. Because I, I just think a lot of parents might think, wow, this like, you know, all these people seem to be into this ideology. Who's, who's with me here? There might be a lot. In fact, I know as a fact, there are a lot more people that are um, that are have have issues with this approach to education, right? But it's just not that obvious in the you know if you if you just look at sort of corporate media coverage and so forth. Yeah, no, there's definitely a sort of a silent majority problem, and if for decades, even predating CRT, these the people who have shown up to these meetings and things like that are the insiders. But parents matter. Parents are the most surprising special interest group in America right now. Um, you know, there's a special interest for everything else. There's a lot of us. Anyone who's ever procreated, you're one of us. The, 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 the newest special interest group in America. And um, I think everything changes once, you know, it's because it is not even a Democrat versus Republican idea. The, the stuff they're doing in the schools is so radical that most Democrats wouldn't agree with it. Um, you also have, you know, Asians are really mobilized by the assault on rigor. You have... Um, People in Virginia who are traditional Democrats who then voted for Glenn Youngkin is a good example of this. And so the traditional alliances all start shaking up once, start, once people start paying, to, paying attention to schools because paying an average of $17,000 per student per year, which is what we pay, and getting an average of 36% literacy among 12th graders, 24% proficiency in math, that's a completely untenable um, reality. And once we realize it, something's got to have to change. Well, Luke Rosiak, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Great to be with you. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of American Thought Leaders with myself and Luke Rosiak, author of Race to the Bottom. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. We live in an era of censorship and disinformation, and it can be really hard to know what's true and what's false in this information climate. To get honest information and insights you can trust, join us on Epoch TV. You can sign up for your 14-day free trial at ept.ms slash freetrialjan. That's ept.ms slash freetrialjan. Mm -hmm.